So, what do you do when you don't get the life that you wanted? When the promises of the billboards ring hollow, when the happy endings that the films that you've been watching uh, remain elusive to you in your experience, what do you do? What do you do when the dreams that you have have been dashed? This is actually a very short talk uh, in this session. You do basically exactly what Sarah's father did in that video. Okay, let's pray and we're done. And we'll say a bit more from Ruth as we consider Naomi's experience here. What do you do when, that's, when that happens, when you get that diagnosis? Because it's quite a, it's in, in real terms, it's quite an unusual thing, isn't it, to respond with such faith and courage? Some people turn their back on God completely. The author Rebecca West said that in suffering, when suffering comes your way, she said, Something has happened which can only be explained by supposing that God hates you with merciless hatred, but nobody will admit that. Many people have rejected the very idea that God exists because they are convinced that if he did, he would not allow them to experience what they're experiencing. He wouldn't allow the pain that they're enduring to come into their lives. But if you do that, If we turn our back, walk away, deny God's existence, all that actually does in the midst of our hardship is add another problem to the list. Because you still have your struggles, but actually now you have no one to turn to. You have nowhere to go to find hope. Do you remember a few years ago the atheist bus advert campaign came out, buses in London? Uh, I don't know if it was beyond London, but certainly in London. There's probably no God, the slogan said, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Uh, Well, Julian Bagini, who uh, is is an author, himself an atheist, wrote this in The Guardian. He said, atheists have to live with the knowledge that there is no salvation, no redemption, no second chances. Lives can go terribly wrong in ways that can never be put right. Sometimes life is terrible, and that's all there is to it. Not much bright about that fact. He was an atheist. He was writing and saying that atheists shouldn't put such uh, banal things on, on buses because that is not the experience of life. And atheists are those who, pro- who propound the idea that there is no hope or redemption or second chances. Now, that's a pretty miserable way to think about life, but you can't really fault his logic. If we take God out of the picture, we have no one to rage against in our sadness And we have no grounds for thinking there is any purpose to the pain, and we have no hope that it's ever going to get any better. This meaningless world simply rolls to its meaningless conclusion when it all burns up in the death of the sun. In this session, we're going to focus on verses 18 to uh, 22. And when we do that, we see Naomi in the depths of her anguish. She's lost her husband, she's lost her sons, and she's lost the life of plenty that she once enjoyed. Now, on the one hand, her anguish is totally understandable. And she's just had this, verses 6 six to 17, we've had this uh, eventful journey from Moab back to uh, Bethlehem. She's pleading with her daughter and daughters-in-law. She says, they'll go back. They, they both, Orpah and Ruth, both set out with her, and then halfway along the road, she says, look, go back 
go back because you'll, you've no hope of getting a husband uh, if you stick around with me. Uh, you've no hope of the provision that a husband can provide uh, and all of that. And Orpah considers her situation and she goes back. Ruth considers her situation and she sticks with Naomi, making that very famous, remarkable commitment. Verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. In fact, uh, the Lord can bring me to death if I don't stand by this commitment. But as Naomi returns to Bethlehem from Moab, it is a journey that our author is, is framing in terms of repentance. Just as going to Moab was very clearly an expression of rebellion against the God of the covenant, returning to Bethlehem is seen as repentance. That's the repeated mention of the word return right the way through the chapter is to be seen as a repentance and a returning to God. But our author here in these verses focuses us on how she processes her suffering and her anger and her sorrow and her loss. She doesn't walk away from God. She has come back to God, but her faith is far from perfect. What we have here is a raw and unvarnished picture of someone wrestling with their anxious, uh, wrestling with their anguish whilst knowing that God is still in control. It can be very difficult. We know what we believe about God to be true, and yet we're enduring hardship. And here is a woman who is wrestling with this, processing it, knowing that God is in control, whilst also experiencing great hardship. And I, I want to focus on what we can learn from uh, what she sees in her circumstances, but also what she misses. What she sees, first of all. So the woman of the town greet her, verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi, the name means pleasant or, or beautiful. Uh, call me Mara. That name means bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She is bitter and the women should call her by that name. But... She sees that her circumstances are under the control of a sovereign God. Her sadness and loss, as she understands it, have come to her from the God who is in control of all things. But what is striking is that she uses a particular name for God. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me, she says. The word is Shaddai, and it is the name that describes God in very specific ways. It is a description of a particular character uh, and uh, one commentator says this, the Old Testament associated Shaddai with God's cosmic rulership by nature, great and mysterious. Shaddai dispenses blessings, promises great destinies, and assigns fate to the wicked and the righteous. As cosmic ruler, he also oversees the maintenance of justice, meeting out terrible punishments. People appeal to him for legal vindication and rescue. That is the character of the one to whom she is uh, appealing, uh, the one to whom she is ascribing the significance of her circumstances. She knows that her plight is Shaddai's discipline in her life. She went away full, verse 21, perhaps a reference to her abundance, but probably also a reference to her attitude. She went away full of her own plans, full of her own ability to sort the family's problems, full of herself. But now the Lord Almighty, Shaddai, has brought her back. 
This is an expression of faith. Her repentance is far from pure, but her outburst, as the same commentator Hubbard says, it assumes a positive view of God, namely that he controls the universe normally with justice. Naomi knows that God is in control. She knows that he is a just God, and she knows that what he is doing is legitimate. So it is an expression of faith. It is the faith of the psalmist. If you remember Psalm 74, he vents his anger, speaks of God in a way that, frankly, many of us would feel very uncomfortable. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? It's very accusatory, isn't it? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your past pasture? It's the faith of Psalm 109. David is poor and needy, weak and mocked in that situation. Yet Psalm 109, verse 26, Help me, O Lord my God, save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know, that is those who are accusing him and mocking him and, and making his life miserable, let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Sounds a lot like Naomi. The Lord has afflicted me. Let them know that you are the one who is afflicting me. You are sovereign, you are in control, and you are working your purposes out. Distress, anger, sadness, yes, but the point is that those sentiments are turned towards God and He is the one who is in control. They know that He is there. They know that He is the one who is ordering and governing the universe. As I said at the start, if there is no God, there is no one to blame for your hardships. I wonder why it is that the world rages and vents so vociferously about evil and suffering in the world when at the same time it says that there's no one there to hear. If we came from nothing, if we will eventually return to nothing, then don't ask why when suffering comes. It is just one of those things. Pain and sorrow uh, are just the things that happen in a pointless universe that's just crashing around, crashing around. And there's no one to get angry with about it. But Naomi knows that God stands behind all of these trials, and she knows that he is the God who turns helplessness to blessing and who promises protection, Shaddai, in times of uncertainty. Even though, her, though hers is an imperfect faith, Naomi sees that God is in charge. And although she clearly resents that fact, she has her faith in his sovereign providence. A number of years ago, uh, I was in an art gallery in the United States and I came across a, a, a huge painting. You came into uh, this particular room in the gallery by a door. Uh, the, the room was, was, had nothing. If we imagine the door was here, you come in. There was nothing on this wall or this wall or this wall. And the piece of art that was in the room was on the wall beside you when you came in. So naturally, you came in very close to it. And that was intentional. Art galleries are organized very intentionally. Um, it was intentional. You came in, and as you looked at it, it looked like a series of splodges, uh, all, all sort of smushed together, bright colors, dark colors, and whatever. Massive, massive picture. And uh, I thought it was kind of some sort of abstract statement piece and uh, prepared myself to stand looking at it, pondering and looking very kind of affected by this. Uh, very like a real cultural elite. Hmm. Pathos. <laughs> but there was a note on the wall beside it, and when you looked at the note on the wall, it said that you should view the piece from a distance. So you came in, and your experience was 
lots of splodges. But then as you move back and turn around, what you realize is that all the splodges were all part of a much bigger and more beautiful portrait of a woman's face. Up close, all you could see were the splodges. And that is all that Naomi can see at this point. But she knows that she has returned to her people and her God. The God who she is clinging to that she knows as Shaddai. When sadness threatens to overwhelm us, and even when bitterness takes hold, as it has done here with Naomi, we need to have faith that our God is the master artist who has painted the canvas of history. And although in our circumstances at a particular point, we may only be able to see the splodges, we need to know that they have been and are being painted together to make a beautiful, beautiful work of art. The question is, how do we do that? How do we have that kind of faith that trusts when all we can see are the splodges? Well, as I alluded to in the first talk, we stand at a point in history that gives us a perspective that Naomi didn't have. We can look to Jesus. We can look to his suffering and what it achieved. The sinless son of God enduring the deepest distress, the deepest experience of injustice and evil and suffering that the world has ever known. Remember, as he considers, as Jesus considers what lies ahead in his crucifixion, he pleads in deep distress with the Father that if there is any other way that the plan of salvation for the world can be accomplished other than him going to crucifixion and bearing the wrath of God, he pleads, if there is any other way, and then when he goes to the cross, we hear him cry out, my God, my God, why? And yet we know that through that great distress, he was taking the wrath of God for our sin and was doing that so that we could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God. When we look at the cross, we see that the Almighty, to use the language of Ruth chapter 1, the Almighty brought misfortune on his son. He brought the greatest affliction of human history on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. That event, the cross of Christ, is the heart of the most glorious masterpiece titled Salvation of the World. And if you can imagine it, if you can imagine the grand artwork titled Salvation of the World, the splodges don't come together to make one person's face. They come together to create a vast portrait of the redeemed throughout history and into eternity. Remember that God is sovereignly at work even in your losses and your griefs and your bitterness and your struggles. He is Shaddai, and he has provided for your inclusion in the portrait of the redeemed. And what that means is that any trials that he sends are his loving discipline to keep you. God disciplines those he loves as sons. So in Christ, your struggles are what your loving Father uses to keep you. Now, that is hard to accept when you're in the midst of it all. And it's not something that you can say glibly or easily. 
when someone is in the midst of their trials, just to come alongside and say, God's disciplining you because he loves you. That's in the category of um, working all things together for good, eh? Uh, you need to duck if you say that normally, my experience. But it's true. And what we need to pray for is the faith to believe that. That in the Lord's discipline, when we can't see it and we hate it and we don't want it, He is, he is keeping us. He is doing stuff in our life that we can't get our head around. And yet in His infinite wisdom... He's keeping us. That's what he did with Naomi. Naomi can see that God is involved, but she can only see his discipline as harsh. And so she has allowed bitterness to get hold of her. Bitterness is such a toxic thing. It eats away at us and it clouds our thinking. When bitterness takes hold, it, it, it is so toxic, probably because it prevents us from seeing the world more clearly. Uh, it prevents us from taking the things that we know in our minds and getting them down into our hearts. It clouds our thinking so badly. It completely skews the way we see everything, actually. And in Naomi's case, this means she hasn't noticed several clear evidences in the midst of her sadness of God's grace to her. So first of all, if we see what, if we think about what Naomi sees, she sees that God is sovereignly in control. But what she misses in the midst of that well, two very evident blessings, the first of which is Ruth. Ruth. Remember that astonishing commitment that was read for us there, verse 16? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. That is a huge statement of faith that she is committing herself not to the God of Chemosh, not to the gods of Moab, but to the covenant God. And to commit herself to him means that she's going to commit herself to Naomi. It is a remarkable sacrifice She's leaving behind uh, the prospect of provision and, and all that goes with that in Moab. And she's saying, no, I'm, I'm inextricably wedding myself to you and to your safety. Sacrifice, loyalty, risk. What does Naomi do in response? Verse 18, as they're walking up the road, she says, um, look, you go back, you go back, you go back. And she said, uh, Ruth then makes this grand statement and Naomi, verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, literally it says, she stopped speaking. She stopped talking to her. And then she sums up the, her experience a few verses later, a couple of verses later, uh, when she gets to the women in Bethlehem, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Uh, what she's saying is, I have absolutely nothing. I have absolutely nothing. On the road to Bethlehem, Ruth made this grand commitment. She stopped talking to her. I don't know what that journey was like after that. Two of them walking along. Ruth's like, well, what, what more can I say to you? She's walking along in a huff. And then they get there and the women say, is this Naomi? And she goes, oh, I went away full and now I've come back with absolutely nothing. And Ruth's standing there. <laughs> now, perhaps Naomi is embarrassed that Ruth is there because she's a Moabite, remember, a Moabitess. She's come back and this, is, this person is here who's a permanent reminder of the shame that she feels of having walked away from God. She's come back in. The women are saying, is this really you? And uh, she's like, you know, I actually want to forget everything that I've just done over the last 10 years. Whatever her reason is, 
She's completely missed the reality that this woman has said she's going to care for her even unto death. Ruth is a provision to Naomi from Shaddai to help her, to help her in the darkness, to help her in her struggles. And she doesn't yet know how great the light that will dawn will be. But even to have someone willing to commit themselves to her in such a sacrificial way is a huge kindness. But Naomi misses it. She misses Ruth. She misses, secondly then, bread. There are a number of, of kind of things that I think you could see she misses here. But then uh, bread is, I, I think, what, what I'm trying to say here is she, she initially went back, verse 6, because she heard that there was bread in Bethlehem again. The famine had ended. The Lord had given his people food. But then the, the, the author reminds us of this, just that last line, verse 22. The women are arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Ah, yes. These two women, it's a reminder, these two women are back in the land of promise. Back in the place where God blesses his people. Back in the land where the heavenly storehouses are open once again. Bethlehem, the house of bread, has bread again. These women won't go hungry. They will be filled by the God who cares and provides for his people. Naomi's return is cast in terms of repentance, but we can see that her self-pity and her self-absorption show that this repentance is flawed. Naomi is a believing member of the covenant community, but she is not doing well. God is holding on. It's as if God is holding on to her, but she's not holding on to him. Or he's holding on to her and she doesn't like the fact that he's doing that. And I think we need to heed the warning that her example extends to us. It's so easy. And it's particularly easy, I think, at a time. Uh, uh, one of the things I found most powerful about that video of Sarah's father is that he was speaking about being so challenged around the sense of entitlement he had about the life that he lives. That is a wonderful kindness of the Lord that he would take that from him. And our culture trains us permanently in entitlement. We deserve everything to be perfect and we deserve it because we are the sorts of people who deserve to be blessed and to experience all of the things that our culture says that we need. And so when our life doesn't go as we had wished, when we don't get what we want, we say, well, God is out to get us. God doesn't want me to be happy. We don't have that job that we set our heart on or the lifestyle that we think we deserve. I think God is being mean to us. When life is hard, even when the hardships are a result of our own stupidity or even our own sin, we blame God. We think that God is being unfair. He's not giving us what we think we deserve. And what then happens is that our hearts become so consumed with what we don't have that they become kind of clothed in bitterness. And when we're bitter, we can't see the evidences of God's kind providence and his continuing goodness in the midst of our difficulties. Like Naomi, we get so caught up with complaining about what we don't have that we can't see what we do. We are so busy complaining that we are empty that we can't see that God has emptied our hands in order that he can fill them with something else. Without Naomi's emptiness, notice this, without Naomi's emptiness, 
she would never have left Moab and returned to the land of blessing and promise. Unless the Lord had made her empty, she would have stayed in Moab and in the end she would have perished forever. God, again, this the video that we saw illustrates this so perfectly. God sometimes takes things from us because they are propping up our life of sin and hardness of heart towards him. He sometimes takes things from us or keeps things from us, even good things, because he wants to use our lives as a powerful testimony of his all-sufficiency. We need to pray for faith to believe that in our trials. God doesn't send us trials because he hates us, but because he loves us so much that he wants to give us more of himself because that is our greatest good. Now, why do we find this so hard to grasp? I once heard an American pastor talking about a situation where a teenage girl had come to see him because she was struggling and she said, I know God loves me, I know Jesus died for me, and I know that he's working things for my good, but what use is that if boys don't want to date you? And we can go, you know, <laughs> yeah, teenagers, eh, really honest. Truth is, lots of us have some version of that same thing as our baseline way of thinking about our relationship with God. I know that God loves me. I know that Jesus died. Look, I know the theology, but what good is all of that if I don't get what I want? Right? We need to see what Naomi saw. We need to see that God is in control and that he is working out his perfect plan that we can't always discern. But we must also see what she missed, and that is that he always provides good things for us, even in the trials. As a Christian, God has given you great things, no matter what your circumstances, all of you. And you know how I know that? Because I know that he's given you a church family. He has given you weekly worship. He has given you a meal at his table, the Lord's Supper. He has given you the means of grace to sustain you. Those are good gifts for all of his people to keep us going even in the hard times. Think about it. What did God give to Naomi most clearly? He gave her someone who would be committed to her and he provided for her. And he does the same for us through the church and the means of grace. And his means of grace come to us ultimately as an expression of his greatest provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ruth, Naomi had one who had sacrificed her own pleasures to protect and provide for her. How much more then is Christ our better Ruth? He left his father's house to come and identify with us. He left the very glories of heaven itself to say to us, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Jesus took on our humanity in order to identify with us, and he took our humanity to death so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so that we could be brought back to the place of blessing and provision. The Lord could have afflicted us. He could have dealt harshly with us, and yet... He poured out that bitter anger on Christ in our place. Every drop of his anger at our sin fell on him. 
And what that means, what that means is that whatever pain or sadness or hardship we endure now, it simply cannot be that God is angry with us. Because all of that anger fell on Christ. What it means is that he is disciplining us as his beloved sons. And as I say, we need to ask for faith that we can receive that. Ask for faith that we can receive our trials and our hardships in that light because we need to do that especially when we can't understand why and we can't see the point. Our Father's discipline always has good ends in view. So friends, trust him, whatever your circumstances. Lean on him. Go to him. Cast yourself on him. Bring all your cares to his feet and he will sustain you. Keep looking at Christ. Keep going to the foot of the cross because there we can know that by faith we can know that the Almighty does all things well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good God who is in control of all things, and we thank you that in Christ you have provided for all of our needs. And we thank you that you do bless us, you do give us good gifts, even through trials to sustain us. And we pray that you would grant us the faith that we need to trust you when life is hard, and that one day we know that we will see clearly and understand why it is that you choose to do things as you do, but help us in the meantime to trust you and to know that you do things well. We pray this in Jesus' name.